everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, everyone, welcome back. Um, we have another little lightning rounds for you, and we're sort of riding this wave from um, the show we did about kind of career development in critical care as APPs. And there's a, a, a subtopic that kind of came up while we were talking about that and some other discussions recently that maybe is a little meta for some of you, but I, I think is interesting. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force Brian to sit through it. And here's my, well, let me introduce this to you with a hypothetical, Brian. All right. Let's say you're not a medical person, but uh, let's say you have a, a disease, a new diagnosis, and you need to be treated for it. And I say to you, well, there are two people you can go to be treated. One of them is um, the head of a, his department. He is a, a full professor at a university, whatever his specialty is. He's um, been the, the chair of his professional society in the past. He has 250 um, scholarly publications. He's written a number of textbook chapters, um, and he's got a beard. You could be treated by that guy, or you could be treated by someone who is, let's even say they've, um, they've been out of training and practicing for the same amount of time, but they, they work in the community and they really haven't done any of those things. They've just been doing clinical medicine for that amount of time. You as a lay person, which of those people would you choose to be treated by? Mm, good question. So as a lay person, not understanding how all this works, um, I don't know. So my first instinct is to say I would pick the academic guy, the chair of his department. But I also know that it's been my experience that a lot of um, people who aren't medical don't really aren't really impressed by all that stuff. Uh, they go more on, you know, who their aunt Sally said was good. Sure, so I don't yeah, know. personal relationships, yeah. and I mean, I think what um, matters to each person will depend. But there's certainly, I think, an idea that sort of achievements in your field, yeah, absolutely, make you a better clinician. And I think we sort of, at least, we behave that way in medicine as well. And yet, is it not also true, or at least possible, that that first person I described, they may only um, practice, let's, let's say it's an a intensivist, they may only practice in the ICU 35% of their time. Maybe half the time, and this is maybe being generous, maybe half the time they're in like a clinic, maybe they're a pulmonologist as well. And then they may have quite a lot of their time devoted to research. They sound like they're very busy there. And um, administration, you know, they're the head of this and that. So they're actually not really doing that much clinical, critical care. And the more academic of a setting you're in, it's often true that there's sort of more distance between you and patience, at least that's how it seems. In other words, that guy is probably at a large academic center where he has fellows, uh, residents, APPs, students, and this whole hierarchy between him and the patients, meaning that he has to actually do very little of it. His role really is supervisory. 
I don't, um, of course, that's an important role too. Um, but I mean, when you count the sort of decisions he's making in a day and the the sort of things he's doing to treat patients, and certainly never mind things like procedures or hands-on things, he's not actually doing nearly as many as someone who is not doing any of those resume things, but is just seeing patients. Imagine someone who is really in a smaller community hospital, maybe a real ICU, but um, they don't, maybe they don't work with anyone. There's, there's no house staff or APPs or anyone. They just see their own patients. There are places like that. That person's doing a tremendous amount of clinical critical care, but maybe you, you would not think they are so successful in their field. So what what I, what I wonder and what I find interesting about all this is that as you go through training in medicine, whatever your, whatever your area, um, it seems like it's all about developing clinical competence. Imagine, you know, we're using the physicians again, for example, um, but, you know, you, they finish medical school, internship, residency, maybe a fellowship, and it's all about becoming competent in their field. And then once they become an attending, it seems like nobody cares anymore. You got, you know, you've you've got the the bona fides. You go get a job, and then it it. I mean, there's perhaps credentialing, and that's sort of a just a bar you have to reach at each hospital. Um, but that's about it. It seems like no one ever asks again. Are you any good at medicine? After that, it becomes only about other things, academic achievements, um, research achievements, um, leadership type things. Um, that is how you advance farther at that point. Um, and for us, it would be sort of being a you know, fully trained APP or whatever. Um, but same idea. When you're you know, a year in versus 10 years in, there's no real way to either um, demonstrate further clinical skill or be recognized for it. Or, I mean, in a way, it's hard to actually build on it. And I think all those go together because if no one cares about it, then it's hard to, to get there and you're not motivated to do it and so on. Whereas the latter of, say, um, academic achievements is, is very tangible. People know how to go about that and they're motivated to do it because their professions recognize it and so on. So I think that is interesting. And I don't know if you agree. Yeah, no, it is. Um, I guess I'd never really thought about it before. Um... So you bring up a good point, right? It's hard to demonstrate clinical skill and advancement in clinical skill. And like you said, if nobody cares, then what's the point? Why worry about it? Um, and I think that's largely true, right? In an academic setting, promotion, at least from phys for physicians, in my understanding, I'm not uh, attending physician, so I don't know firsthand, but uh, does seem to be based more on academic performance, um, publications, etc., or like you said, contributing to your field through leadership and society activities and stuff than clinical competence. And I certainly don't mean to in, insinuate that, uh, that these folks are not clinically competent. Uh, I would hope that surely there's some sort of mechanism in place to make sure that they are. Um, but also I feel like how do you assess that, right? Because if you're—that's what I'm saying. They go together. Go, how yeah. would you know? <laughs> so if we go back to our example of if I'm a non-medical person, how do I how do I assess if you as a provider are any good at your job? Uh, because the fact is, I don't really know what makes you good at your job. It's a very interesting dilemma in that if you look at other professions, 
I can sort of gauge, right? Like I might not know how to fix an air conditioner, uh, but I can certainly read reviews online and know that, you know, Larry's air conditioning repair does a good job. They show up and they're very professional and they fix your air conditioner and they charge what seems to be a reasonable amount. Um, but, you know, that's an that's an industry that the, the sort of the expectation is your air conditioner gets fixed, right? If your air conditioner doesn't get, get fixed, then that's a problem on them. Not on your air conditioner. I mean, I yeah, guess you know, like tough cases. There. Yeah, I guess you, you could have the thing that, well, your air conditioner is 30 years old and it can't be fixed. It has to be replaced. But, you know, we deal a lot in medicine every day with things that the most competent clinical practitioner still can't fix. Right. So if you proposed making like an objective endpoint, what would it be? Right. Right. Because you can say like, well, my grandma went to Dr. Smith and had cancer and he couldn't make her better. Therefore, he's not a good doctor. That's not necessarily true. Uh, right. And, you know, someone could go to Dr. Johnson and get better. That means Dr. Johnson's a great doctor, but not necessarily true either. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how you assess this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, you use it a you know online reviews example. I mean, there is some of that in medicine, and it is true that I think people know when someone is an asshole. So when right. someone is interprofessionally not skilled, uh, or maybe that's a, more of a human skill, that is well recognized. And I, I mean, I think that is an important skill. And maybe adjacent to that, I mean, I think people have something of a practical, subjective impression of people's skill. But a lot of it is interprofessional. It's, do they do they sound confident? You know, do they make decisions readily? Um, do they interact with the team and communicate well? And they're, a, um, they're just a, a good colleague. And are they, you know, perhaps good with patients and their families and things too? That is apparent. But again, that, that is really just a specific subset of clinical skill. Um, if you're going to ask, like, do people make good decisions? Do they have good medical knowledge? I don't, I don't know how to demonstrate that. Probably the easiest place might be procedural type things because those are kind of concrete. So surgeons are, of course, the best example of that. And I think in their cases, there is more of that. People do talk more about this guy is a good surgeon or a bad surgeon. Mm -hmm. Again, a lot of that is subjective, but I'd see, you know, how, you know, how fluent they seem to be in the OR and sort of in a gestalt sense, how well their patients do. And you can track outcomes from some of their procedures. People, that does happen sometimes. They, you know, what are people's whatever, complication rates, mortalities. And then there is still those arguments you made, you know, is one person's patient uh, population the same as the next and so on. The one guy who's taking the sickest patients might have the worst numbers, but that doesn't mean he's the worst surgeon. Right. Um, but that maybe there there's at least something there. And for us too, you know, if when we do procedures, you might say, you know, you, you are trained at more procedures than the next guy and, you know, they almost always go well or something. If you're not tracking numbers and actually analyzing them, I don't know how well you could demonstrate that, but you could. I mean, I well, you, you could do that. For how many times have you had a pneumothorax with a subclavian line or, or whatever? What's your first pass intubation rate? Things like that. But when you get into more kind of medical decision making, which is, you know, really still the core of what we do, I think it's a lot harder to demonstrate. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, going back to you know what you said about the interprofessional skills and stuff like that, right, there's studies that show, um, you know, providers who sit down with families and spend time with them, 
are less likely to get sued, regardless of the outcomes. Providers who go in and sit down and admit fault when a mistake is made are less likely to get sued. And I think, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I think there's got to be a component of he's a nice guy to that, right? Like if you sit down and spend time with a family, uh, if you go in and readily admit, hey, we made a mistake and this bad thing happened, but you seem genuinely nice about it, then I think families are probably less likely to sue you because they think you're a nice guy, not because they think you're good at what you do. Um, and, you know, I, I think maybe you go in, you give the impression that, hey, this random thing happened and I'm really sorry that it happened, but it's a rare, a rare occurrence. But you don't know, right? That, that guy could have that conversation every day with patients. <laughs> um, there's just not a good way to assess that. I think... For lack of a better way right now, a lot of it, I think, would come down to what's the opinion of your peers, right? Because you you and I both know we're, we're both involved in, you know, groups, uh, you know, online, and uh, we have colleagues who practice around the country. And, and from time to time, someone will ask, does anyone know a good cardiologist in the Denver area or something like that, right? Because someone needs a a specific specialist in a specific place and they want to know, does someone I know, know someone who they can recommend? Because ultimately that's what I care about, right? I trust you and I trust your opinion. And so if you say they're good, then then they're good. But that, uh, that really doesn't help if you're not someone who personally knows someone. Yeah, I guess that's the system that we rely on for, um, maybe for things like hiring employees, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you get references, you talk to people and you say, hey, you know, what, what's the deal with this person? Um, but it, it's so imperfect. I mean, if, if you ask 100 people what they think of anyone about anything, I mean, you're going to get a lot of weird responses because it depends on so much. Like, what if... You have the the Dr. House character who is um, a brilliant clinician and a total jerk. I mean, what are most people going to say? A lot of them are going to say he sucks because they don't like him. I mean, maybe if you really broke it down and you realize, yeah, but like, does he get good outcome? Maybe they'd be like, yeah, I guess so. But he sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but th- those are so woven together, it's really hard to say much. And then, I mean, can, can someone else really adjudicate your clinical skill set if they are not equally skilled? I mean, they need to understand what you're doing and why. Right. Right? So, I mean, maybe you think someone is, doesn't, is doing something that doesn't make sense, but they're, they're actually way ahead of you. They're considering all kinds of things that you didn't even understand. Um, but, I mean, I don't know how you tie all this stuff together it, outside of the extremes, right? Sure. People who really are very poor and maybe people who are really excellent, I, I think they, they do become a parent. It takes a while. Um, it's, I mean, it, it, yeah, but eventually the, whatever, the, the surgeon who is grown out of the field or something, and it's just not really, it can't really do the same work anymore. You know, eventually people will notice and they, they kind of push into retirement, that sort of thing. Uh, the, the, the guy that it seems like all of his patients do poorly, they, they kind of eventually manage to shunt him off to some other institution or something. Um, but I mean, everything in between there, I, I think is rough. And I, again, I mentioned this not because it's sort of an interesting philosophical topic, but because when 
when we don't understand how to recognize these things, um, there's no motivation to be excellent at them. And that, to me, implies that people are not going to be as excellent. Um, what do you even... What do you even do? What's even the relevance to you of being a better uh, PA or doctor or whatever you are? Um, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Whereas it means something to, you know, get another publication or something. Yeah. That is a concrete thing you can put on a piece of paper and it affects your career path and you feel good about it and people congratulate you and just it, it all. It's, it's like it's real. Yeah. I mean, one of the um, here's an here's an example. Um I am, in a couple months, if all goes well, I'm going to a, a, a course. It's the, the Resus TEE course. It's a, um, a, a TEE class they teach you to do TEE in certain settings. Um, hopefully it'll be interesting. It's not going to be something I have any immediate use for because we don't really have TEE in our unit, but at some point maybe it'll be useful and relevant. Um, so you can argue that is a, that is a, a rung I'm climbing on a, a clinical ladder. I'm at gaining a skill set I didn't have. Um, th- that maybe is a, 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 an operationalized way to say someone advanced as a clinician. They've, they've had a specific training they can point to in a certain area that, you know, if it's a, um, valid or, you know, seems like a meaningful sort of training, then they're a different, better clinician than before. Um, so, you know, Classes, certifications, courses, that I guess is a way you can try to um, make something concrete as a clinical skill. Yeah. Um, I guess, though, how concrete is that? Right? Because, like you just said, you're, you don't have an immediate application for TEE in your unit. Now, I would argue that any education like that is going to make you a better provider, right? Knowing how to do a TEE and utilize that is going to make you better at transthoracic echo. It's going to make you better at recognizing different cardiac dysfunction. It's going to it's going to help improve your skill set in things that you do do every day in your unit. Um, but I guess not everyone would see it that way. They might say, "Well, you could argue that's you know, not a go- that's not one you value." But I mean, let's say certifications in general. Yeah. I mean, if you fa- if there is one that is relevant to your work, I think you can go to someone and say, "Hey, I'm I maybe not better than you, but I'm better than I was before I, I took this thing, right?" right and they, sure. I, they it's they I took a test and I demonstrated it and I uh, I proved the skills and whatever their process is because any valid certification they they have a, a you know a, a model that you can sort of prove that you acquired the skills. Um, so that seems somewhat real, but that's that's just pretty limited. How many areas of clinical medicine is there a certification for? Right. Right. And, uh, and even then, do you, you know, I took a test once upon a time and that's it, um, you know, or do you keep doing them over and over again? Yeah. Have you sustained it? There's, um, there is, in our field, there, you can be a fellow of critical care medicine. That's uh, the SACM or the ACCM awards those. And most, most of the colleges and societies in medicine have some sort of a, a, a fellowship program that is awarded to people who have um, sort of achieved some level of um, significance in the field. And they're all different criteria. But again, the point here is it is a label. It is perhaps meaningful. You hang it after your name. Maybe it's good for your career. But in very few, if any cases, I think, is it because of clinical skill? So an FCCM or uh, 
an MCCM, a master of critical care medicine or, you know, equivalents in other fields. If someone has that, are they better at doing medicine? I mean, no, right? They, they've been doing it yeah. a while. I mean, that, I, I guess, seniority has some correlation, very roughly correlation with clinical skill because you've been around a while. But that also may mean you're, you've been doing less and less medicine. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, and I, you know, I know people who are FCCM and MCCM who are not good clinicians. I mean, I've, I'm not going to name names or anything, but I've, I've met some. Uh, and then I know some who are f- fantastic clinicians. Um, and I think a lot of that goes back to this whole point of it's just hard to as- objectively assess that. Right. You know? I mean, you can you can um, look at someone and say what their seniority is. So, again, they've been doing this for 5, 10, 15 years. That is a very loose correlation with skill set. You could, you could acknowledge the amount of the volume of work they do. So if they um, they see many many patients, they're in a very busy center. They work a lot, or they're not, or they've um, haven't been around long enough to do something. Or if you're talking procedures, of course you can count those. I've done a thousand of these procedures, or I've done five. Sure, that means something. Um, again, to the point, you can list those numbers. Um, if you can put outcomes with those, then you know so much the better. I've done a thousand Whipples, and my mortality is eighty percent or something. I mean, that seems like the gold standard, because then not only can you make it objective, you are associating it with what people care about, which is how successful you are. Right. But of course, there's still a lot of limitations there. Um, But beyond that, I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So I think you bring up what is ultimately the quintessential problem with assessment in healthcare and we keep coming up with systems to try and figure out ways to do this. And ultimately they're all flawed. Like you said, looking at outcomes alone, isn't significant. Um, I once worked with a transplant surgeon who would accept uh, a lot of patients who were turned down by multiple centers. And, uh, you know, people would say, I mean, how much sense does this make? These people are turned away from other places. Why would you accept them? And his response was, yeah, they're turned away from these centers who do a lot of volume, who have really good outcomes. They don't, they can afford to turn away people who, you know, might not do well because that person who doesn't do well hurts their numbers. So they only do slam dunk cases. Whereas I don't care about those things. I don't care about my outcomes because, you know, I feel like those are meaningless numbers. And so he would accept these people and by and large, they would do well, but you know, on paper, they were riskier patients. So if he has poorer outcomes overall, is he a worse surgeon or a better surgeon? Uh, I mean, I would argue, I think in his case, he's probably a better surgeon because he's taking on the harder cases, even if he has poorer outcomes overall. So I don't know. I think ultimately we keep trying to come up with these systems to assess this and, they ultimately fail to do that and in some cases have negative results like unintended consequences like this transplant right people are getting yeah. tur- turned down who might do well because they're not slam dunks 
Yeah, or you can gain the system if you know the yeah. outcomes. But you know, you'd say that people are trying to do this, and I'm not. I'm not sure if I agree because I feel like at the level of the clinician, no one actually does care much about this. Um, when you're when you're hiring people. Um, when you're uh, doing licensing, credentialing, certifi- certifying, that sort of thing, um, I feel like people tend to be, um, you know, they, they're hiring people that are uh, agreeable to work with, that are um, not like a, a problem in some way. But when it comes to the clinical thing, it's more of a checkbox. They have the right licenses and things, and they seem adequate. And then, um, again, only if they prove to be like wildly incompetent do you do you shunt them out of there yeah agreed. but you know you go into an interview for a job or something and um they don't try to get a sense for like are you a excellent nurse or a average one or a so-so one because again how would you um i mean i uh, y- we do try to do this in other settings so for instance if you do a study where you're trying to, like maybe an observational study, you're trying to compare outcomes from some intervention in two groups, um, but they weren't randomized. They'll try to balance those groups based on the risk factors they can identify, right? Maybe you, you try to balance them by whatever, their Apache scores or some, some marker of severity or you know age, things sure. like that. So it try, it, you try to make it seem like two groups that are, you know, are not equal are working from the same place. Um, Maybe you could do that for individual clinicians. I mean, there there is some looking at um, statistics for a whole, you know, units, whole hospitals or departments. You know, what are our outcomes like with this or that? Because they'll compare between centers and say, hey, how come your mortality is so high? How come you have so many collapses? Things like that. Um, but I, you don't hear much about um, the same sort of thing for individual clinicians. Hey. How come your adjusted mortality from sepsis is is so much worse than the other guys? <laughs> yeah, you know we, we we balanced all these variables and it's like twenty percent difference. What's your deal? And you're like, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I I did. Um, the only thing I've seen is back when uh when I trained, they they did track um transfusion rates for for some of the surgeons and how often they were transfusing outside of what they considered normal um, indications you know hemoglobins below seven and things uh, and they would they would like post those numbers on walls and stuff so everyone could see <laughs> I mean that seems like the kind of thing you you could try to do for individuals um, to the extent you could you know get the data reasonably valid yeah but I think we just keep coming back to the same point that Assessing clinical competency, I guess, for lack of a better term, is such a messy target that how do you do it? You know, because like the the, the blood transfusion thing, yeah, that uh, that assesses your um, what's not the not ability. What's the word I'm looking for? Is assesses your uh, how well you stay how well you adhere to a guideline. Right. Um, but does that make you a better or worse surgeon? Not necessarily. Yeah, probably a lot of those people would argue there was a reason, that, yeah. you know, why this didn't apply to them or to that patient right. or, or whatever. Um, I mean, if, um, I mean, you're right. We're not going to answer this today. I, I mostly just wanted to yell about it. But, you know, if we circle this back to the example I gave, the guy with the gray beard, um, if we are to wildly generalize, I would guess that that particular intensivist is going to be clinically excellent at 
a few specific things where he has specialized. The areas where he has done his research, the areas that he is written about, taught about, that, that he has academically focused on, assuming they're not so um, like academic that they're of minimal clinical relevance. It's mm-hmm. not like molecular research or something. But if it's about, you know, I don't know, lung protective ventilation or something, I mean, he, he knows a lot about those things and can probably apply them to patients. Um, areas outside of that, he probably is um, competent. I mean, he, he has been around for a while, and as long as he's not totally um, moved into unrelated areas of medicine, he's still probably aware of the general themes in critical care. Um, the like nitty-gritty day-to-day kinds of things, um, like probably performing procedures in most cases, um, things like, uh, I don't know, writing orders, um, maybe, you know, certain hands-on kinds of skills, like, I don't know, perhaps ultrasound, depending if it's not an area of interest, um, maybe physical examination, depending on if that's his thing, um, maybe interacting with patients, families, staff, and things, maybe something he uh, cares about, maybe not. Um, those might be areas that he is not that strong because he has to do very, very little now. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, again, I'm generalizing, but you know, there's, there's no need for him to be good at all these things anymore. So there's very possible that he won't be. Um, and so in the role that he's playing in the structure he works in, he probably can provide good, good care because that is the role he has. It is to supervise. It is to, to teach. Um, it is to provide that high level view. And then, you know, at each rung below that, there is someone who is very good at the things that he is, um, no longer very good at. Um, but if you took him as a an individual, I I think I would probably want to be cared for by the the community <laughs> clinician who still does everything all the time, and um, his specialty, you might say, is not in any of those other things like sitting on committees, but it is just taking care of patients. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, and on the flip side, though, I think there's also something to be said for the guy who's very actively involved in the academic world is probably a little bit more up on the current practices and literature, um, at least in my experience, than the, than the community guy. Yeah. Now, whether he applies true. it the, the same way, you know. So I think there's another distinction, right, is, is talking clinical skill in terms of knowledge versus um, abilities with more like psychomotor things, right? Like you were saying with physical exam or, uh, interacting with families, you know, those are things that you're going to get, you're going to be better at earlier on in your training. I think when you do it more, um, and, and, and not as good later on when you're a little more removed from it. Uh, I always think it's hilarious when, um, the nurses call, to say, hey, none of us can get an IV on this patient. Can you come try? And I think, you know, I mean, you're probably way better at it than I am. Uh, I'm so far removed from putting IVs in people every day, you know, with the exception of having some tricks up my sleeve. Uh, you know, if you guys can't get it, I probably can't do it. Um, you know, and so on. But I think the knowledge base may be um, maybe more in the, in the guy that's really invested in the academics. Now, like you said, it, it may be very niche knowledge, right? It may be very focused 
And I'm not really interested in this aspect of critical care because I don't do my research in that. I don't sit on those committees. So I don't keep up with those studies, but I do keep up with these studies. So there's always that possibility. Yeah, and and you're right. You could um, work in community medicine. I mean, we're using these kind of terms, but you sort of get what I mean. You could just be a pure clinician for 20 years and really just do the You've you've been practicing the same one year of medicine for the past twenty years. You, right. you have not changed or progressed at all. That that that's not real experience. That that is certainly possible. Um, but I I I do think that there is also an aspect of um, you, when you talk about like high level kind of um, you know, like theoretical things and progress in the field, knowledge there, and then on the other end, it's like hands-on, procedurally kind of things, concrete tasks. I think there's something in the middle, too. There, There is a, a skill, um, and I think it's a, a, a perishable one that you have to practice, of making kind of smaller decisions at the bedside on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute level all of the little things that happen in caring of a patient that are not the, you know, if you're really on a high level, supervisory level, four levels removed from the hands-on patient care, um, you know, what do you do? You you round with the team, you'd, you'd decide a few things that, you know, needed help deciding on, and maybe you're out of there. And then most of the rest of what happens during the day maybe is decided by you know, various other sorts of people, trainees and things, and you hear about it later. But that means that you're not practicing those decisions anymore. And I do think that y- you can forget how. You know, if the only decision you made was to, we should um, start the patient on dobutamine, um, and then you're out of there. All of the, the, the little cogs and wheels and smaller decisions that happen between now and a patient, you know, stabilizing or improving with that strategy, you're not making. And I think you can forget how. The little things like, okay, their cardiac index is borderline, should we go up? You know, the we gave them a, a bolus. This is what their heart looks like now on echo. Should we give more? Are we good? Do we watch and wait? Do we do we tweak this other drug? You know, oh, the, this patient might be extubatable. We gave them an SBT. They look a little borderline. They're kind of tachypnic and working, but they, maybe they're okay. Should we do it? I mean, you may be the sort of person who's making all these decisions, but if you are removed from all of this, I, I do think you can forget how. And that's okay, again, if other people are, are largely doing them and your role is something else and you're watching them and they watch those things and, and so on. Um, but I, I, I do think that you can be um, kind of high level enough that there are practical decisions that you are no longer great at making. Sure, yeah. So... Yeah, I don't have any deep answers about this, but I think the the lessons would be that, you know, um, academic or kind of leadership, administrative kinds of achievements don't necessarily have any correlation with clinical skill, good or bad, um, meaning you could be very uh, well achieved in an academic field and not so much clinically or vice versa. Um, and I, I think that as a field, we should give some thought into how we can better operationalize the idea of, of developing clinical skills, because if we don't, people largely won't. People who have will not be recognized for it. And I think overall, um, uh, I think overall the field suffers a little bit for that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, I think that's a really good point. Um, I just, I don't know what the answer is though. I don't know. How, I don't know how to assess that, sure. um, but I think you're right. I think there, there should be a way to assess that. Well, maybe, uh, maybe if any of our gentle listeners have any bright ideas in this area, and it's certainly something that seems right for innovation. So like if, if your, your center is doing something interesting in this area um, or your region or you have some ideas, lay, us, lay them on us. You know, um, send us an email. Shoot us on Twitter. We'd like to hear it because I'm curious. Yeah, me too. All right, Brian. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Yep, sounds good.